Now come on, Willie. I know you can do it, boy. I know you can jump this wall. Come on. I believe in you, Willie. You can do it. You can be free. Come on. You can jump it. hunt for good Star Trek podcast content is over. Welcome to Southpaw Deep Space Nine. This is the only show where a veteran Star Trek fan, yours truly, Angel Marti, watches through episode by episode Star Trek Deep Space Nine with my friend Sam, who is new to Trek, but definitely not new to media analysis, having uh, just gotten one of the most uh, popular articles uh, on the awesome Squid Game review, and definitely not uh, not new to political discussion. And we analyze the political and cultural messages in every episode, both explicit and subtextual. Sam, how you doing? I'm good, and uh, I have an announcement to make. Ooh, this just in, Sam. What what what's the announcement? So. I just got word that even though we're only a few episodes in, we are already the number one DS9 podcast for communists who like the Heart Foundation. Yes, we did it. We (laughs) did it. We worked so hard to secure that niche and we did it. Now, next, we just have to we just have to dominate the DS9 podcast who like the rockers. That's our next step. (laughs) Baby steps. We'll get there. And just to give people who might want to look up that article, it's at The Real News. It's Squid Game and the Long Shadow of American Empire. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's awesome. I trust you that he talks about Squid Game in a way that like nobody else that on your social media feeds talks about it. Well, uh, without further ado, let's just get straight into our episode this week, which is episode one by five captive pursuit uh of course if you're watching it on paramount plus like i am because i'm fancy uh it's (laughs) episode six but we go by the netflix order uh for the plebeians so we open on a dabo girl complaining to cisco that as soon as she started her uh job quack Uh, immediately made sexual advances to her as soon as she started working. And his defense was that Quark said, it's part of the job. Uh, Cisco wants to help her, uh, but then they look at her employment agreement, and then it turns out that it is contractually part of the job. Uh, This is is one of those things where we kind of find out that sexism is very much like codified into Ferengi society. And... uh, Pretty much all of like the lascivious behaviors that we kind of, you know, understand as being uh, implicit, like uh, implicitly encouraged and tacitly encouraged and institutionalized by capitalism are always very explicitly uh, uh, codified in Ferengi society, like they're in the letter of the law. I think thus far in our DS9 Trek, this is our first direct mention of sexual harassment and sham contracts, which often can coincide and also be their own thing. Sham contracts is something that a lot of sex workers also have to deal with. And uh, sham contracts is also something that even uh, independent contractors have to deal with. So uh, it was interesting to just open up with this. It made me wonder what was happening at the time. This episode was first aired on January 30th, 1993. So, I mean, 93, we're in the first year of the Clinton presidency. So we're definitely not not a stranger to sexual harassment uh, from people in positions of power being part of the national discourse by this point. It, it, it is funny to me about this whole conversation, I guess because it's the cold open, that they always end up 
interrupting or being interrupted when they're about to say the word sex. Like when Cisco looks at the contract and says, it's there that you have to order the Dabogo cuts her off. And then when they're about to say it again, Kira interrupts saying that they've got wormhole sign, which is what I'm calling it because I'm both a Dune and Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan. Uh, and uh, and then Cisco walks off saying he'll talk to Quark. I, I do find this funny because it's like, there are definitely other episodes of Deep Space Nine that just do say the word sex. But I guess I guess it's just, again, because it's like at the beginning of the episode, they're like, oh, you know, this is this is before when we actually changed the channels and and people were like, oh, kids might flip across it because it's the beginning of the hour. But also in the order of things, maybe wormhole is the code word for sex, you know? <laughs> oh, wow. that I didn't even think about that connotation. <laughs> uh, so we finally get to ops and. Uh, you know, as somebody who has seen the whole series and knows that the show definitely doesn't stay this formulaic, it is always interesting to go back and watch these earlier episodes because they do seem to establish this kind of formula of like, Cisco is dealing with non-space related things that seem kind of silly. And then we go to Ops and the alien du jour appears in front of the station. Uh in this case, it is an unidentified ship that is, seems to be the first ship to come through the wormhole from the Gamma Quadrant into the Alpha Quadrant. Apparently, mostly ships have been going from the Alpha Quadrant into the Gamma and back. Now, for me watching this for the first time, the introduction of these new quadrants very much reminds me of new COVID variations, especially <laughs> in their names. It almost like makes me more afraid of these quadrants. <laughs> I know. I know. We've had the Greek alphabet ruined. Like, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm, I would be surprised if like the whole fraternity and sorority system in colleges keeps like existing very long after this pandemic, considering nobody will want to hear Greek letters ever again. But they kind of treat it like that, though, right? Like, it's a new quadrant. It's the gamma quadrant. Like, you know, what, what does that mean? So it's kind of interesting. They never really like explicitly lay it out like until like maybe one of the later shows. But basically the way they put it out is that, I mean, when they call when they talk about a, qua- a galactic quadrant, they just mean that the looking uh, at like a transverse view or like, you know, I uh, I'm trying to use a more scientific way than saying like from above since there's no up or down in space if you're looking at the galaxy from above for lack of a better word uh and and you slice it into four uh pieces that those are the quadrants the alpha quadrant i I may have said this in our first episode the alpha quadrant uh is where where earth is and where most of the federation is the beta quadrant uh is where like a little bit of like the Klingon Empire goes into, but we don't really explore very much of it. I think like the Romulan Empire is kind of slightly in there. But then on the other side of the galaxy, uh you have uh the Delta Quadrant and the Gamma Quadrant. And they're, you know, you'd ha- since they're on the other side of the galaxy, they're farther away and more exotic, I guess, because <laughs> they never yeah, they never really we never really had a show that explores the beta quadrant and Discovery's already leaving the damn galaxy. <laughs> So we we hail the ship that's uh, coming at uh, Deep Space Nine, which is also damaged. We hail the ship. We find out that uh, unlike the last ship that was damaged coming towards the station, it's not harboring a Bajoran terrorist, but it's some lizard dude. Uh, <laughs> and for some reason, he's uh, very much uh, hesitant to accept help from Deep Space Nine until O'Brien uh, speaks friend and uh, Grant's passage, much like in Lord of the Rings, uh, it just seems he's oddly soothed by O'Brien just calling him friend, I guess because this guy's used to being called, hey, dickface, or something like that. Because <laughs> I've never seen somebody so uh, so thoroughly disarmed. Although, like, I love O'Brien too, so I would do anything O'Brien told me to do. In fact... Cisco notices this and assigns O'Brien to be the first one to meet him because, according to his words, it's a little less intimidating. O'Brien confirmed, acknowledged, harmless, doughy cuddle bear. <laughs> and then O'Brien boards the alien ship. It's looking very unfamiliar and nobody's in it somehow. And then O'Brien, very much like me approaching a stray cat, uh, tries to pss, 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 
at uh, at this new creature, uh, although not in as many words. Instead, he just says, friend, you've got nothing to worry about from me. And here's uh, something that immediately uh, stuck out to me, Sam, and I want to know if uh, if it's already uh, stuck out to you, is that by this point in the show, we already know that uh, that O'Brien has a prejudice against the Cardassians. Yet, for a similarly reptiloid species, uh, who's a completely unknown quantity, he seems very trusting right off the bat and doesn't seem to have any kind of fear about it. I think a worthwhile interpretation of this that is entirely my own projection and might not be any kind of intention of uh, of the writers is that, you know, O'Brien at heart wants to put that Federation and Starfleet ideal of, you know, ultimate acceptance and diplomacy and lack of prejudice at heart. But his experience with the Cardassians has let him sort of feel like he's justified in having that prejudice. And I think, again, it's useful to take that lesson of like, even if you have the best intentions, you're never above folly, you know? And even if you think you are perfectly progressive and, you know, have done all the work of unpacking yourself, you're never beyond, you know, being caught in something uh, unwoke and you have to like acknowledge and work on it. So here, like O'Brien's just a good uh, reminder that, you know, man is always going to be a massive uh, contradictions. Dialectical materialism. You said the secret word. Speaking of secret words screaming at you like on Pee Wee's Playhouse, uh, O'Brien does get, uh, it turns out that this lizard dude has kind of chameleon uh, camouflaging things and he materializes behind O'Brien and we get a nice bit of physical comedy because we get a Hanna-Barbera style bonk on the head. (laughs) And he turns around and says, uh, you can't sneak up on people. It's an alpha quadrant rule, which uh, I find is, uh, is just a fun thing to say, you know, to somebody you're meeting for the first time. But uh, I, as somebody who, you know, was diagnosed as an adult as being on the autistic spectrum, I get a lot of like neurodivergent, you know, and more specifically autistic things from Tosk. Well, spoiler, that's that's the name we learn. Uh, well, we we O'Brien asks what his name is and he says, I am Tosk. And it doesn't seem to uh, clear up whether that's his personal name or his species name. Uh, but uh, so Tosk uh, just doesn't seem to care much about social rules. He holds his body kind of weird. Uh, you know, he reacts, he just sort of reacts to everything with just sort of this intense fascination. Uh, it's something that I can kind of relate to, especially I have another friend who was diagnosed as being on the spectrum as an adult. And she pointed out to me something about how like a lot of like autistic and other similarly neurodivergent people hold their arms like in weird ways. Like she said, like Zorak from Space Ghost and Tosk does kind of like hold his arms out in front of him, kind of like I do. So I was just like, huh. Ah, oh, I guess I guess I am Tosk too. <laughs> What's also funny about this is that there is a common way of explaining uh what it's like to be autistic to people who are neurotypical and often it's like imagine you're an alien on another planet. You know, you don't you don't understand the social customs, like you have a hard time communicating. And so that de- there's a great episode of actually of the PBS kids show Arthur that uh where there's an autistic character and uses that explanation and uh and so that jumped right into my mind with like when when especially when uh when o'brien like makes a joke at him and all of he does is just sort of like uh look right in look at him like intensely in the face and say i understand i think there is like an unconscious thing amongst writers as well this idea of like this foreigner this like permanent foreigner or this outlier the stranger right which neurodivergent people can fall into or immigrants or aliens right (laughs) literal space aliens can fall into where in movies you often have them say like i am whatever because it is such a trope to have an autistic neurodivergent character just say that and you often saw that with like i don't know like some uh movie where they run into asians for the first time 
or some uh, Mongolian conqueror for the first time. Or, or Tarzan, you know, his first is like me, me, Tarzan. Yeah. And they will say something like that. Right. So I think it is kind of like almost a problematic thing, but they're picking up on something real where it's like, yeah, there is like people in our own lives that are like that. And then they then they project that onto foreigners like uh you know projecting deafness onto foreigners like can you hear me and it's like yeah i can hear you fine right oh right right they project <laughs> these disabilities onto foreigners yeah exactly the american tourist idea that the universal language is just english shouted loudly and slowly yeah and i think that comes from reading people in their own culture that they want to keep away from them right and they exaggerate those characteristics in their minds, right? And then sometimes that shows up in writing and it can be handled in a very thoughtful way, like in Arthur or <laughs> in a not so thoughtful way and other stuff. And I think with DS9 or a lot of space alien shows, the writers are often unconsciously drawing from that and they don't even recognize it sometimes. So I think you're right. You might be reading onto something. <laughs> right, right, right. So on the ship, uh, Tosk sort of, greets O'Brien with both fascination and uh, suspicion. Uh, I, I noticed here that uh, I noted here that the the actor does do a good job of also sort of emulating the body language of a timid animal, especially his head movement, because there's this whole scene where O'Brien's like, OK, I can fix your ship, but you got to teach me how to fix it. And that'll take a little while. So let's get you out of here. And like my family has a whole history of like rescuing lots of like stray and feral animals. So it like the whole interaction really does feel like, you know, trying to lure a cat out from under the house <laughs> with a, with a, you know, open can of food. So great job by Scott McDonald. So we finally get Tosk out of the ship, but then as they come through uh, the airlock onto the promenade, uh, we do see something that we haven't seen yet, which is there's sort of a little, uh, force field that passes over O'Brien and uh, and uh, O'Brien explains that this is a security force field that notices that O'Brien is carrying a weapon and uh, and but knows that O'Brien is authorized to carry it and then they have a discussion about the fact that O'Brien's carrying a weapon but that does not mean that he has hostile intent and and uh, O'Brien makes a joke about like you've how he has to protect himself in case he can find someone who can make himself invisible. And again, Tosk uh, sort of is able to process that it is meant as a joke or at the very least that O'Brien isn't somebody who is going to hurt him and just goes, I understand. And then just continues returning to the the more interesting thing of exploring his new environment. So at this point, when he's like actually in full regalia, walking around and you get a good look at him and, Tosk looks very much to me and acts very much to me like an 80s pro wrestler from parts unknown because you see that he's got these traps. He's got these giant quads. He's got like the bot. Yeah, the bodysuit. Yeah, which is skin tight. And then uh, even his behavior, right? Now that I'm bringing up like these wrestlers from Parks Unknown, which often meant like from the jungle somewhere, right? Or from like the Orient, like he moves like the great Kabuki. Or Tajiri. <laughs> exactly. From those wrestlers who are from parts unknown, they move like in this kind of convulsing, like twitchy way, which now, oddly enough, in movie trope is like how zombies move, right? But like back in the day, zombies didn't move like that. But now like modern zombies are fast and they kind of twitch and convulse. And so it does kind of remind me of like the progenitor of a lot of that, the 80s pro wrestler from parts unknown. And especially at this point, Throughout at least most of the episode, you're dealing with the same question that the pro wrestler from Parts Unknown raises, which is, is he a heel or a face question? And the audience is trying to unravel it along with his new tag team partner in O'Brien, right? Because sometimes like talent enhancement wrestlers or like sometimes mid-card wrestlers would sometimes be forced by the company to be tag teams and that's part of the storyline that they're forced to be together and they're not quite sure about this other guy one is like the good old american wrestler but then there's this one who's from parts unknown and he's like what's going on here is he gonna attack me like he doesn't even know if he should tag him in or not right and it's got that vibe o'brien's like fit finley he can you know <laughs> just team with whoever and just be a you know a good old uh grizzly you know compliment to him yeah 
But then just like that, right, after you get to know him for a while, the one who can speak English and is familiar with, quote unquote, the boys in the back, then they're the ones who always has to like explain and defend their weird tag team wrestling partner to everybody. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. Tosk is okay. <laughs> a note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. No, it just made me think about, again, like not to totally make this a pro wrestling podcast, but it just made me think about how Tosk is reptilian. And then specifically with like the great Kabuki and then later the great Muta and Tajiri, this whole thing about like, Japanese wrestlers always moving in this like snake-like way and then also like spitting poison. It's like, why did we always think that Japanese people were like reptilian? Racist stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, during this whole conversation where, where you know, O'Brien is sort of guiding Tosk around uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, there's a particular line of dialogue that uh, that definitely caught my ear, which was, Tosk asks, what is the station's purpose? And O'Brien summarizes the entire job of Deep Space Nine as to keep an eye on the wormhole, which uh, I definitely want to pick your brain, Sam, as far as like a political history point of view. To me, like to for the Federation to run Deep Space Nine and sort of appoint themselves, you know, I'm, I'm sure that like they would explain it in a more subtle way than O'Brien did, but, you know, or a more diplomatic way. But just imagine, like, has there ever been a point in history where, like, a single political entity has try and, tried and, like, you know, claim sole custodianship of a throughway that goes across borders? I mean, I guess that's like the U.S. with the Panama Canal or, uh, t- like, I wrote down, like, it's just like imagining if, like, a single country had tried to claim sole custodianship of the Silk Road. Well, it did remind me of, like, the British in China. And especially like the reptilian, like to your point, like the Asiatic manners of Tusk. Oh, man. Oh, it's all coming together. Yeah. I guess we'll just see if uh, it, if they end up going into any opium dens. I was going to say if that was going to the wormhole was going to lead to some opium wars like later on. <laughs> oh, my. OK, you know what? I'm all I'm going to say is that you just made a bunch of people who have watched the entire show laugh pretty hard right now. <laughs> I will not. I will not say anything, but you definitely guessed. You guessed something. I won't say like how like deep into it, but there is. Yeah. Anyway, so back to season one, episode <laughs> six. So we get into like the intrigue when uh, O'Brien, uh, very credulous, very trusting of Tosk. Uh, I mean, Tosk is acting very childlike. He's acting very just sort of wide eyed and curious about everything. Uh, but he shows him to his quarters and he and Tosk, upon O'Brien leaving, immediately uses the computer to sniff out where the weapons are stored on the station. Why does the computer in ordinary civilian quarters even tell him the location? Even if he, do- he does mention uh, the computer does say that it's like restricted to people with a security clearance. But like, why would you even tell him where it is? That's like if I, I mean, like, I can't look up where Area 51 is. It's not like saying, you know, oh, it's in this area in New Mexico, but you can only go if you have a clearance. There's an amazing level of trust in civilians in the 24th century. And, you know, with our uh, previous conversation about colonialism in China, the UK and China, right? And your your points about Asian pro wrestlers, right? But uh, when they first meet in the ship, right? You just know that Tosk is I am Tosk. That is his name. That is his species. That is also his gender, right? I'm saying his because you had a note earlier that we didn't bring up. Right. O'Brien doesn't ask him his pronouns. (laughs) It was assumed, right, that it was a he, right? The reason why I bring this up now to our Asian conversation and about China is because Chinese, prior to British colonialism and British impact, was a non-binary language. It didn't have pronouns. And Korean doesn't either. I'm sure this is, I've read that this is true for a lot of non-Occidental languages. So they had to learn how to gender their languages to communicate 
with these uh, new like Westerners. And that point that you made unconsciously harkens back to that as well. Please forgive me, Sam, but as an uh, as a fluent Chinese speaker, I'm going to be the white guy who actually a Ch- an Asian person about Asian things. But just to clarify, you what you said about Chinese wasn't substantially wrong, but Chinese still has a gender neutral third person pronoun. It is only distinguished in gender in writing form. But yes, like that, that you're right that it was only like the the different. The differentiated writing forms were only introduced after foreign intervention, but spoken Chinese still uh, uh, has a completely neutral uh, third person pronoun, which is very convenient. So after uh, so Cisco Cisco and the ops crew meet with O'Brien again to see what he's sort of figured out about Tosk and and uh, again, ironically, he prefaces his assessment of Tosk with "You hate to prejudge anyone," and it's like we we literally saw you a few episodes back telling Cisco to not trust the Cardassians, like right off the bat. So uh, pot kettle, uh, whatever. Um, but he does he does he does suspect that Tosk is on the run from somebody because the damage to a ship is very clearly uh, uh, weapons damage, but. Uh, but he he doesn't want to suspect uh, he doesn't want to suspect that Tosk himself has any bad intentions because he says he just I want to like the guy uh, I guess I guess that's that I it's helped me understand that maybe that's part of my charm is that I'm just so blunt and uh, always just very direct about what I'm interested in and curious in that people find that charming so thank you Tosk for helping me understand myself. But uh, Cisco says that O'Brien should basically just be his friend, continue to find out more of what what he can. And of course, that means taking him to Quark's. During the the conversation leading up to that, Tosk reveals that uh, he basically has no concept of rest and relaxation. Uh, He only needs about... uh, 17 minutes of sleep per rotation i.e per day and he has like some kind of like nutrition system embedded in his skin but uh his his then conclusion when going into quarks is uh that the alpha quadrant has far too much downtime uh sam i had i have a feeling that you had about a a reaction to that line Uh, like the easy one about like uh capitalism where we all have to work ourselves to death right (laughs) But the joke is like, you guys are all lazy, right? Or at least that's what he thinks. <laughs> but I think Tosk, 24 hours a day, he is working. He is always doing something. He cannot rest. There's something about his life where he cannot rest, right? Yeah, it, do- it does lead us to the fact that he has like the stuff implanted under his skin does make us think, why does he have that implanted? What does he do with his life that would require him to like, you know, always be on the move. So actually that's a smarter that's a smarter thing to comment on I think than just me going like eh, eh Amazon Jeff Bezos <laughs> pissing in bottles. <laughs> actually that's a good point right pissing in bottles Amazon too but it reminded me of those hikers runners who have those like backpacks or the, <laughs> or even like the helmets with like uh water on it where you just have the straw attached to your mouth so you don't have to actually like stop to drink you could just drink while you're walking or you're hiking or you're running right it all seemed like it was part of like being constantly on the go constantly on the run that will always be like the most confusing thing to me anytime i'm in some kind of like sports oriented store when it just sells those like pouches full of like nutritional goop that i guess you're supposed to just like be able to like squeeze into your mouth without stopping (laughs) running like to me that's just that's just like there comes a point a point where like sports crosses over into just uh okay this is this is me just like abusing my body but uh before the running police get after me this actually does connect back to capitalism because for so many for so many americans now because they are so on the go whenever you ask them about breakfast or they're looking for breakfast they always want something they could drink right they're like is there a shake i could drink or smoothie or whatever or soylent yeah 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 oh because- yeah tosk is basically the inventor of soylent <laughs> did you ever li- did you ever uh listen to the uh uh the dollop episode about soylent about like how basically the whole thing was created because he just didn't want to waste time eating anymore and uh a lot of people who work like long hours at their jobs their breakfast has to be something they could eat in the car or on their way to whatever. So that's why like in the mornings, shake smoothies are becoming 
the number one like breakfast food for Americans or a banana. Why? Because unlike other fruits, you could hold it in your hand, peel it, doesn't make a mess, and then you just throw away the peel. It has to be something like that that you could hold in your hand and eat on the go, right? So that shows you how like what was supposed to be for athletes who are running for them to eat has become American breakfast, right? Because Americans just are overworked, right? They're just working long hours. So Quark talks to Tosk, you know, trying to figure out what he can uh, convince him to uh, to enjoy in his bar. And then uh, and then Tosk with like a genuine sense of uh, apology in his voice goes, I'm sorry, I have no vices for you to exploit. <laughs> and now in light of, of what we just discussed, that just makes me think about how uh, there's all those like articles that are just about like, there's too much life in the work-life balance now. And <laughs> like, like this, like Tosk here is clearly engineered to be the ideal worker, whatever his job is, because he just does not need to have a life and he doesn't know how he is alienated from any life outside of his job. He is an alienated alien. Double alien. It's alien <laughs> squared. Alienated alien. That sounds like a name of a punk band. Here. Quark reminds us once again, the hollow suite is the nookie room. When Quark tries to pitch the hollow suite as like a room of like a thrill and romance and adventure, uh, Tosk responds, uh, I have no need for fantasy adventure. I live the greatest adventure one could ever desire. And to me, that really sounds like a hip young Mormon trying to turn the conversation he's having into like about Jesus. Uh, it's just like, I live the greatest adventure ever. I'm living for the Lord. But, uh, uh, Unlike a Mormon who wants to talk with you about what he's doing in great detail, uh, when uh, O'Brien tries to ask him what this adventure is, Toss says he cannot discuss it. Well, you know, if Christianity was so great, you'd want to keep that to yourself if you really think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Why, why are you trying to give it away to me if you like it so much? This much sucks. Yeah, what's the deal here? Why, why is it saying it's free? Why? What's the strings here? <laughs> Have you heard the good news, says the ad on Craigslist. <laughs> there, that's about as much as O'Brien can get out of him. And uh, he goes back, reports to Cisco. And again, th oh, this is where he says he kind of likes the guy, uh, which, uh, you know, I just I just hope people feel that way about me after like they first meet me. And I'm just like to asking if they want to hear about Gigantopithecus or something. <laughs> Have you heard about Gigantopithecus, Sam? It's an extinct gigantic orangutan that we've able we've been able to reconstruct only from jaw fragments. It's one of my uh, it's one of my little pet pieces of knowledge. Hi, uh, welcome to being friends with an autistic person. Um, but speaking of Gigantopithecus, uh, a, gigant, a giant mystery here is what is Tosk running from? And so we see a little bit more uh, entrapment here uh, because Tosk, <laughs> Tosk starts poking around on a computer, probably the one where the weapons are stored that he was looking up earlier. And then Odo, uh, fucking goo cop, uh, was disguised as a painting and uh, then uh, catches Tosk. But, but Odo does what most cops can't do in real life, and that's deal peacefully with a neurodivergent person. <laughs> and in fact, he does not even lay a finger on him. I mean, probably it helps that, you know, he's able to just trap him in with, uh, with uh, force fields. But uh, uh, I have this written down later, but I just think it's useful to bring up here that Odo is basically like the mythical good cop that liberals think exists. <laughs> but doesn't like whenever they try to like invoke like a hypothetical cop that doesn't abuse his power. Like that's basically what Odo is a shapeshifter. It's about as likely as a shapeshifter. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so Cisco, uh, after, after Tosk is taken to a holding cell, Cisco tries to ask more about this adventure because clearly he wants to get into Jesus, but Tosk tells him that, uh, that he cannot discuss it. And, uh, O'Brien is able to deduce that uh, he was trying to break into some weapons and Odo asks him if he's ever committed a crime. And then Tosk responds, never. I am Tosk and I am Groot. There you go. See? Yeah. So, so we learn. So what we can gather from here is that Tosk is trying to arm himself, but he's clearly not a bad guy. Um, and then Cisco again, uh, just 
Cisco's been really good at like doing this sort of mysterious, always playing the long game kind of thing in this episode in particular. So he's like decides to sort of bait a trap. He says, hold Tosk in the brig and see if uh, anyone comes looking for him. And there's questions about Gamma Quadrant and they're talking about this is the first person from Gamma Quadrant, which really does solidify that idea that the Gamma Quadrant in this, at least this episode, is the parts unknown where this mysterious wrestler has appeared from. Where Colonel Colonel Tom Parker went voyaging in the jungles <laughs> of the Gamma Quadrant. Uh-huh. And with Kim Chi. I, I know, but I was thinking, I, I was just thinking like, you know how Colonel Tom Parker, like when Harlem Heat was first introduced, they literally came out in chains. Like, oh, it, man. They quickly nixed that because they fucking realized why. But I just imagine it's like in chains, you have like Booker T, Stevie Ray and Tosk. That could have been an actual gimmick. That's how bad it was back in the day. Oh, oh, that would have been like mid 90s WCW, like when they were doing like RoboCop and shit, like. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely RoboCop like comes in to rescue t- uh, uh, Tosk. Absolutely. While in WWE or WWF at the time, you had a masked manager named Kim Chi bringing out Kamala with a leash around his neck. Yeah. Now the Sultan and just like then Al Snow playing Avatar and <laughs> was it Savio Vega playing Quang, the Mongolian ninja. Just um, there you go. History's been history loves Asian people. You know, they're just we've been very kind to them and very respectful. You know, you love to see it. Um, So O'Brien takes a moment to uh, after Cisco and, and Goo Cop leave the holding cell to try and get some more info out of him. Like just being like, come on, you got to tell me what's going on so I can help you. Cause you know, O'Brien loved Tosk and Sloth loved Chunk. Uh, uh, but uh, the only further little thing we get is that Tosk is uh, ready to uh, die with honor and that he needs to be let out of the cell. So we, so he can die with honor. So uh, again, something, something's fucking going down, but, but I can, I think, I think we as the audience and I, you know, am able to sympathize with O'Brien realizing that Tosk is definitely not the problematic person in this case because he's just trying to protect himself. But then we have Wormhole Sign again. Uh, it's another unknown ship. They say that the, that, that the ship matches Tosk's signature. But then these new, also unknown aliens, they scan the station, fire a beam that disrupts the entire station's shields. This is a ship that can disable a station shield. They, they must be some serious like, you know, threatening, scary motherfuckers, right? But no, they beam <laughs> onto the promenade and they all look like Mega Man. The Hunter outfits are some of the goofiest I've seen in all of Star Trek. Does it get worse from here or is this known as some of the worst among even DS9 fans as well? It's It gets better. Paul, <laughs> oh my God, I just called you. I just called you Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> the long defunct co-host. Yeah, no, I was after talking about Asian racism, I just confuse you with another Asian guy just to prove drive the point home. No, but Sam, it does get better. It does get better, Sam, especially because, you know, like as as all Star Trek shows progress, you know, they get if they if they prove themselves successful, they get a bigger budget, they get better production design. So, no, you're right that, you know, some of the aliens in especially in season 1 do and especially these ones like like these aliens look like some kind of like public domain clip <laughs> art you would use to like advertise laser tag. Okay. They're not given their species isn't even given a name like in this episode. And then on memory alpha, they're just called the hunters, but I'm just going to call them the mega man. Uh, I mean, and it's too bad. They look so silly because you know, they, they do then proceed to wreak some havoc on the promenade. One of them knocks Odo out with a punch before he can goo his way out of it. Uh, uh, and then, uh, there's a big firefight. They have like this wrist armor that can block phaser fire. It's just like, if they didn't look like some kind of generic PC game character that like comes preloaded on your windows 95 desktop, like they would be pretty badass. Now, why doesn't Odo use a phaser? Again, he's the he's the mythical good cop. He doesn't need a weapon. You know, it's like it just any I mean, he has his goo powers so he can subdue people without, you know, it's like we just we just have to, like, understand that this is just the 
Odo is like the the fulfillment of that liberal fantasy that there can be policing under capitalism where cops just, you know, need sensitivity training or de-escalation training and they won't shoot people. I mean, well, actually, even going back to the Western framework, there is that whole Western slash Kung Fu movie, you know, like genre, right? Where there's like the martial arts guy becomes the sheriff of the Western town. And he's like, I don't use guns. I use kicks and Kung Fu, except Odo doesn't know how to do that either. But it's just like, I can become a sofa (laughs) and you can lie down on me and talk to me about your problems. So one of the Mega Men charges up his Mega Blaster and busts open the brig. Uh, where there seem to be no other prisoners at the very least, which I like to say at least, you know, again, you know, if we're if we're doing the headcanon, uh, you know, uh, projection of how the Federation works, you know, we can sort of say that it's like, you know, it's like China where there are police, but there's some kind of like, you know, there's no longer the bourgeois char- class character to the police and they don't use policing and uh incarceration as sort of a default so at the very least while there's while there's still problems with the role that odo fills it's not like he's like throwing everybody and anybody uh in the brig uh but chances are that probably is also because they had a low budget and couldn't hire other actors to (laughs) put on alien suits if you love the southpaw project please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on patreon It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. But so we see that, um, there's this whole chase, the firefight, and then it, it uh, Mega Man has a laser that can see through tossed camouflage. He just sees that he's in this uh, fighting, he's in this really good fighting stance, though. Uh, hips low, back straight, nice arching of the crotch. Like, I, 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 for some reason, that's like, I mean, I guess the reason being that we're both martial artists. That was the first thing that when Toss reveals himself inside the holding cell, I'm like, ooh, that's like, he's like in a Silot stance. Like, it's a good stance. <laughs> And uh, it also reminded me of like those uh, 80s posters where wrestlers would pose for the photo, right? And they would do that same pose, especially like those uh, mysterious, you know, quote unquote, jungle wrestlers. Yeah, great Kabuki again. Yeah, <laughs> man, everything's wrestling. <laughs> but then they're fighting Mega Men. So that's that's kind of weird. It's like, well, you know how like in those NES games, there would always be like, especially like Kirby and Mega Man, there would be like one like wrestling powered, like a wrestling based villain where like you swallow him and then you get like suplex power. Like that would be the great Kabuki in like a Mega Man game. <laughs> Wrestle Man. Uh, <laughs> so here's where things get interesting because so the Mega Men finally uh, catch Tosk, but he seems disappointed that he sees Tosk alive and in this holding cell. And he, uh, the lead Mega Man reports back to the other Mega Men that he has them alive. And then the others immediately beam off the station. And then Mega Man Prime takes off his helmet to reveal that he's actually Whizpig from Diddy Kong Racing, if you, if you remember that game. Uh, again, they don't, they don't give the, the species a name. So I'm just calling him whatever I want. Uh, but it, so we finally get uh, this sort of like, revelation of the whole scenario here because uh the lead uh yellow piggy uh says that toss race uh was uh uh conquered and they are bred specifically as hunting game to be set loose and hunted uh and they are also sworn to an oath of silence about the truth of their existence uh so we also learned that uh tosk is not just the name of the individual but the name of their entire race and Sam, I've been waiting all episode to say this. Hey, Sam. Hey, Sam. Do you know why they have to keep breeding uh, so many Tosk? No, why? So they can multitask. <laughs> I see. I'm so proud of myself for that. I'm so proud of myself for that. So, of course, Cisco, uh, seeing that, you know, a sentient being is being used as chattel for uh, prize hunting, uh, is rightfully disgusted and incensed. And... Uh, but Piggy says that he's going to give Toss the greatest humiliation, which is to bring him home uh, captured and alive so he can be put on display for children to make fun of him. And uh, I just 
can't help but think that it's a good thing that Tosk doesn't live on 21st century Earth, where we put ourselves voluntarily on TikTok when we want to be made fun of by children. <laughs> it's true. So here's where uh, we have another great uh, Cisco uh, pulling somebody into the office and uh, yelling at somebody. And I just realized that, like, if I were gay and the jury might still be out on that, I mean, whatever, I'm only 33. I have plenty of time to explore, but I would have such a daddy kink for the stern. I'm about to tell you in very precise terms how many new assholes I'm going to tear you, Cisco. Like he he just tells he tells Piggy Dude like exactly, you know, why the shit's wrong and how he's not going to, uh, you know, let Tosk go uh, just in this very. And there's just so much of a commanding authority that comes off to him that it's like, it, I can't describe it other than a level of command that crosses over into the erotic. <laughs> Sam, let me know when my horny is bothering you too much. I know there's like already enough horny with Bashir on this show. <laughs> yeah, Bashir has been a bad influence on you. Yeah, I've been infected with a Bashir miasma. Uh, it, it is infectious. Like early at the beginning of the of the episode, I forgot to mention that like after so Tosk runs into Bashir, who's of course talking up some hot lady, and then like later on, he ends up like ogling. Uh, Tosk ends up ogling some bullion woman walking out of courts, and I'm like, ah, you've caught the Bashir horns. <laughs> but now we're getting to some more of the political meat of this, right? Now we're dealing directly with gladiatorial enslavement and chattel slavery, lack of personhood. But this can also be read as an episode about toxic masculinity or even an allegory for patriarchy if we connect this to the first scene about sexual harassment. So there's a lot of ways to read this, but it is very much about... Yeah. Very much about lack of consent or very much about... How patriarchy traps people into certain roles because it's like the Dabo girl is contractually trapped into her role as victim. And it's like so and Tosk is by is culturally bound and, you know, by 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 nurture environment bound into his role as prey. And uh, and uh, there basically is is this argument uh, between the lead piggy and Cisco, which uh, this is where we get like uh to me, the, like a lot of people agree that this episode's a very classic uh, uh, Trek episode. And to me, what marks it as such is having like the classic Trek scene formula that goes like, yes, my people had something backwards like your people have now, but that was back in the backwards and barbaric 20th century. Not now. We're we're better now because you're right. You brought up some things that were definitely part of human history. And Cisco's like, we're, we don't do that anymore because we realized it was wrong. I mean, ultimately, I think this episode, the meat of the politics is about conquest. And there's two parts to conquest historically also, which is imperial conquest, which you see with Tosk, but also sexual conquest, which you see with the person who works for Quark, uh, who does Dabo, which what is Dabo anyway? Oh, Dabo is just like, it's basically space roulette. They never really explain. They never really explain the rules of it. I mean, you know, just like they don't explain Pi Show on Avatar. It's just like, this is a space game that we play just so that way they're not just playing bingo. But there's always like the spinning of a wheel. So it's probably something like roulette. So this element of conquest, right, imperial and sexual is still lingering in Asia today is still lingering. And something I talked about in my Squid Game article, which is it's lingering in Korea, Japan, all throughout Asia. It didn't become like this sexual tourism hub out of nowhere it was forced upon by conquest by the west and also by japan too but japan was getting direct aid from the west up until a certain point you go back and even uh up until the attack on pearl harbor and they became enemies quote unquote right i like to say frenemies yeah because prior to that with japan conquering korea that was agreed upon and okayed by the U.S. under the Taft-Kasura agreement. And then the U.S. is the one who traded with them to get them all their steel, to get them industrialized. And then Japan took all of our rice and gave it not only to Japan, sold it to the U.S. So they wanted that. The U.S. wanted that, right? And uh, even why I say frenemies is because even before the war ended, they invited Japan to the Bretton Woods Agreement to figure out how capitalism was going to work and everybody was going to be under the U.S. dollar slash gold standard. 
it, it, it seems very easy to set up that analysis because like to me, when I think of these kinds of like organized recreational big game hunts, you know, I think of the British, like to me, that just feels like a very specifically like British kind of, you know, pastime, you know, release the hounds. And that seems to very much like be, you know, what these a- hunter aliens are like. And then, uh, you know, so while Cisco's like trying to argue with lead whiz pig about, about the whole concept of the hunt, they sort of pull out the, the human nature argument. There's like, the animals are bred to be killed. They like fulfilling their promise. They don't know anything else. They don't, I mean, as we see from Tosk, because he's been so fully alienated from any other kind of way to live his life, he like doesn't understand how to be anything other than the victim of the hunt. He's conditioned and colonized, right? He's internally colonized. He's been conditioned. This is all he knows. Earlier, you bring up dialectical materialism. And I'm in the, re- I'm in the middle of reading uh, Dialectical Materialism, an introduction by Maurice Cornforth. And uh, one of the things uh, that it starts out as it's introducing uh, dialectical materialism versus like, you know, idealist forms of thinking is that uh, the whole idea of sentient beings like specifically the whole like when people talk about you know communism goes against human nature that the very idea of there being an innate abstract immutable human nature is like in and of itself an undialectical argument because you know all organisms are are influenced by their conditions and vice versa so it would make sense that the hunters would sort of appeal uh to this in uh abstract immutable um nature uh, of their of the Tosk species without even like allowing for the possibility that if they change their conditions, they could live differently and know something else. Because, you know, that idealism and an undialectical way of thinking uh, is the only way that they can justify their their exploitation of other of other sentient people. Yeah, I think even like uh, writers and thinkers like Amé Césaire has talked about like how problematic humanism can even be because it was thought about like by these westerners these western conquerors so to them they're like well it's just human nature it's like yeah but you got to decide what human nature is right i don't agree with your definition i know this is only episode five but like we've reached a like a nice peak of like actual like you know specific philosophical citations in this episode good job <laughs> us because you need the pro wrestling to get there yes all roads lead through pro wrestling towards dialectical materialism. Of course, of course. As we're sort of heading into the home stretch here. So Cisco, uh, as a short-term solution, decides to release Tosk in exchange for uh, the hunters, the hunter piggies, the whiz pigs, uh, officially setting DS9 as like out of bounds for the hunt. And then he also cites the prime directive, that old chestnut about how like, because the hunting is like part of their their culture, like, you know, start the Federation has no room to dictate to them, you know, what is, uh, you know, what is correct and what is right. And of course, O'Brien, because, you know, sloth love chunk, uh, protests. And, but I like this. I really like this because they pull the possible workaround here that Toss could ask for asylum, but they have to convince Toss to ask for it. Uh, because we saw the asylum thing pulled a couple of episodes ago. But when Tosk, uh, when O'Brien asked Tosk, uh, you know, uh, if he wants to request asylum, he refuses because he just thinks that his whole life is meant to um, seek an honorable death in the hunt and that he cannot deny his existence as Tosk, Uh, which I just I just love that they 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 were like, oh, what if we just did the solution from a previous episode? But then they show that it doesn't work here. I, I. I mean, I know it's it's not like very heavy handed, but I enjoy that they're just like, oh, it's not just going to be the same, you know, solution every single day. It's not just going to be, you know, this uh, Superman always just flying in and punching the villain as the way it ends. It's like we're going to have to try different possible uh, results here. So O'Brien realizes what's going to happen and uh, sort of goes to drown his arrow, uh, his sorrows in Synthale in Quark's. And uh, Quark uh, notices that uh, O'Brien's not good, not in a good headspace. And at first he thinks that uh, it's uh, O'Brien having trouble with my wife. (laughs) I also like that Quark remarks specifically, your face gets very pink when aggravated because it's nice to like 
hear somebody say something weird about white people's skin because we don't get that a lot. <laughs> but um, so they, they sort of have a little bit of a back and forth and O'Brien's sort of like really fed up with the fact that the Federation has to play by its own rules, such as, you know, the prime directive and then the whole, like the hunters have their own rules and Tosk is basically caught up in these two opposing sets of rules. And uh, he remarks to Quark that I guess the Ferengi really like rules, so they would they would have specific rules about this kind of situation as well. And Quark is saying that rules are open to interpretation, and O'Brien has a eureka moment where he realizes he can just change the rules. Uh, and so finally we get uh, the, the resolution here is that O'Brien concocts a maverick scheme where as they're about to let the piggies walk off with Tosk, uh, he uh, walks up to the whole like retinue of people uh, and number one, gets rid of Goo Cop by saying he has orders from Cisco to replace him as escort, which again references like in the previous episodes, you know, Odo has uh, already had a lot of like chafing against uh, um, uh, Cisco's orders and directions. So again, nice continuity established right up top. Um, then after he gets rid of Goo Cop, um, he's uh, playing on the piggy's obsession with cultural protocol by saying that it's uh, Starfleet's cultural sign of respect to give them a personal escort off the station instead of simply letting them beam off. And then he throws off his comm badge to let him know that to let to let us all know that he's going off the grid. Going back to the Western, it's the sheriff putting down his badge to break the law, right? Yeah, you're right. The badge. Yeah, the badge iconography. You got to break the law to do what's right, right? Like sometimes the laws are unjust. Exactly. Uh, and so what happens is he walks them through the same uh, uh, airlock that we uh, got that we walk that that he walked Tosk into in uh, Act One. And then Chekhov's gun fires and the security force field uh, sees that the piggy guard has weapons and gives him a shock. And then O'Brien gives him a nice Irish potato in the face, uh, punches him, knocks him out. And now the hunt has resumed and Tosk can die honorably someday. And so now we've got a bit of a diehard situation where, where um, actually, actually, it's kind of an E.T. situation. Exactly. O'Brien is Elliot helping E.T. run away from the FBI. Yes. Or it's like Free Willy. In fact, this has definitely got, become like one of those like children's movies where it's like the kid has to help like the captive alien uh, uh, or animal reach freedom. Jump to freedom because there is a point where Tosk finally jumps, leaps over O'Brien like Free Willy into freedom. Yes. If anybody here is good with video editing and can get us a video of Tosk doing his magnificent pounce while the Michael Jackson song from Free Willy plays uh, over it. I'll I'll give you a kiss <laughs> or something. I, I don't know. Hey, we have fans now. We're number one. We are number one. We have five fans. Yes. So here's where we start to see uh, uh, Cisco uh, also wanting to play the rule-breaking game because he notices that Tosk has escaped, that O'Brien's with him, and Oda's about to run off and capture them. And then he just goes, uh, Chief, there's no need to worry. We then get a nice climactic episode, uh, a moment where uh, Tosk says, uh, uh, now you are Tosk as well, O'Brien. And it reminded me of the end of Guardians of the First Guardians of the Galaxy, where Groot like, wipes away Rocket's tear and goes, we are Groot. Like, uh, <laughs> finally, acceptance. So uh, we finally get Tosk. Uh, Tosk is able to uh, Tosk is able to escape, and he can hopefully die with honor someday. Probably two days later. <laughs> yeah, but but I just think we get a good moment here where where O'Brien is like you know given the threat that if he disobeys orders directly like that again he might get reassigned. But you know uh, O'Brien says like hey like why didn't you like I, I'm pretty I was pretty certain I was going to get caught by Goo Cop like what happened and. And Cisco's like, uh, oh, I guess that uh, that let us slip by. So I guess if like you ask like, you know, a writer at the time, like what's the most like saccharine way you can, you know, describe the moral lesson of this episode, you'd be like, it's like Martin Luther King when he said that an unjust law is meant to be broken. All right. Well, uh, before we uh, wrap up, are there any other uh, thoughts you want to share about this particular episode? 
no, I think we're good. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us for our uh, discussion of Captive Pursuit. Uh, definitely join us next time. We are going to be watching Season 1, Episode 6, Cueless, where an old friend from the next generation comes and visits. Uh, tell your friends. Share with all of your, uh, share with your fellow Star Trek fans, share it with your fellow commies, share it with your mom. I don't care. Share and obsess over it, you know, in your, in your favorite, uh, Star Trek, uh, Facebook groups. And also, uh, please listen to the other shows on the Southpaw Network. You know, we've got, uh, Pride Never Die. We've got Working Stiff Radio. We've got Fight Study. Uh, you know, there's something for everyone. It's like DS9. Yes. Something for everyone, right? So what part of Deep Space Nine is this show? Are we, we're the hollow suite because we're the sexiest part. <laughs> yeah, we're the nookie room. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I love your description of it. <laughs> da-na-na-na! Da-na-na-na!